Welcome to Decisive Point, a U.S. Army War College Press production featuring distinguished authors and contributors who get to the heart of the matter in national security affairs. Decisive Point welcomes Colonel Gerald J. Krieger, author of Water Wars of the Future, Myth or Reality, featured in Parameters Spring 2022 issue. Krieger works at U.S. Army Forces Command. Previously, he served as an Associate Dean of Strategic Studies at the National Defense University of the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. He has published several articles on wide-ranging topics and is primarily interested in international relations with a focus on the Greater Middle East, Sub-Saharan Africa, Asia, and the South China Sea, and U.S. foreign policy in these regions. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the authors and are not necessarily those of the Department of the Army, the U.S. Army War College, or any other agency of the U.S. government. First, I really just want to thank you for joining me today. I'm glad you're here, and I'm excited to talk about your article, Water Wars of the Future, Myth or Reality. It dials in on the Nile River Basin and the security challenges there. It offers policy recommendations that will serve American interests better and improve agricultural practices in that region. Can you lay the groundwork for us? How do things like population growth and climate change affect this topic? Well, when most people think of the Nile River Basin or NRB, water scarcity is not something that comes to mind. It almost seems counterintuitive that there would be areas and water is going to be an issue in the basin because it's the second longest river in the world. However, that's not quite true. Egypt, for example, is one of the most arid countries and some around the uh, region get very little up to 10 millimeters a year of rainfall. So climate change is exacerbating water access issues in already arid regions. In addition, population growth around the planet is going to approach 9 billion by 2050. Based on UN estimates, the Nile River Basin is expected to double and approach nearly 1 billion people in that region alone. Egypt's population with 100 million people is expected by 2030 to hit 128 million. So all of these things are contributing factors. Just seven years ago, for instance, in sub-Saharan Africa, not necessarily just the Nile River Basin, there were 783 million people without access to clean drinking water, which adds to health and nutrition issues and things like that. And climate change, irregular rainfall patterns can cause floods, which obviously loss of life and uh, devastating consequences. And then droughts, multi-year droughts in particular, in the Nile River Basin alone, there are 300 million people are living on less than a dollar a day. So they're on that cusp of existence, you know, where little things kind of add up and make a, a huge difference over time. In particular, if you look at climate change and projected patterns and different models, temperature in Egypt uh, expected to increase about two degrees Celsius over the next century. So there are patterns where people are living right now, that's going to be more challenging in the future. And then millions of tons of carbon dioxide and greenhouse gases in the atmosphere only contribute to these patterns, making things less predictable, impacting the level of the Nile River. These variability water levels impact the livelihoods of people. People up and down the river for generations have relied on fishing, for instance, and that's gone away. If you look just from a holistic standpoint, there are rivers that are drying up in Africa as things are changing. We're talking about dams in this, and that's one thing that impacts the water levels, sediment, and things like that. We'll talk about that. But these annual cycles and you know rainfall patterns that originate in Ethiopian highlands, they generate about 80% of the Nile's total flow. The White Nile originates in Lake Victoria and the Blue Nile in Ethiopia, and both meet in Khartoum. And 97 to 98% of Egypt's water supplies 
come from the Nile. And we haven't done enough studies about the silt that has come down for centuries that have kind of provided some fertilizers and things for, for some of the farming areas. That's been changed, right? Because there are a number of dams. So there are some other things that come into play here, maybe some historic agreements that play a part and shape what's going on in the Nile River Basin. Can you walk us through the most relevant of those? You know, 1929, they guaranteed a certain amount of water from the Nile for Egypt's use for cotton, because cotton was a huge industry when the British controlled the region and they fed the textile mills in London. So the Nile uh, Water Agreement 1929, British-Egyptian Treaty, stipulated no project would take water away from the Nile to prejudice the interests or reduce the quantity of water arriving into Egypt. And that's key. However, when Sudan gained independence in 1956, it was concerned that Egypt's second dam, the Aswan High Dam, wouldn't abide by the agreement. So tensions between Egypt and Sudan escalated. 1959, they resolved it signing a full utilization of the Nile Agreement, and they specified that Egypt would receive 5.5 billion cubic meters a year and Sudan 18.5. Or more recently, in 1999, all of the riparian communities came together, Burundi, Democratic Republic of Congo, Egypt, Ethiopia, Rwanda, Sudan, Tanzania, Uganda, and Kenya, and they created a Nile Basin initiative to promote constructive dialogue, training, education for farmers, sustainable water practices, and they wanted to cooperate. But, but this is built on trust. And this broke down very quickly. Egypt and Sudan never signed the agreement because they wanted a special veto to make sure international law is enforced, right? They want that veto power because they're trying to protect their historic rights and things like that. So they're not going to sign, although they still participate. But the key in all of this is trust. And I think that underpins uh, both the NBI uh, and then the use of the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam. But sustainable practices impact the entire community. It's not just one country. So, so the community does recognize that. They just get bogged down in some of these details and control. They do recognize the need for better water agricultural practices. But I think if we push the NBI, getting that foundation or springboard, and again, Egypt and Sudan are, are kind of key, it can help us as we negotiate with Ethiopia. Sudan is kind of caught in the middle, but between Ethiopia and Egypt on the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam about coordinating discharges during droughts because there are multiple dams. Um, and then once you recover from a drought, obviously you've got to fill, so you're going to have to retain some of those waters, which is going to impact everyone else downstream. So you've mentioned the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam a couple times now. Explain it to us. The Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam, or GERD, was completed in July of 2020. It is significant for a couple of reasons. It's the 10th largest dam in the world. 13 turbines can produce 5 gigawatts of electricity, which is 2.5 times larger than the U.S. Hoover Dam, just by scale. It's a big project. It's got a big impact. So Egypt currently operates the Aswan Dam and the High Aswan Dam. And Sudan has six other dams on the Nile River Basin. But by far, obviously, this one is the largest. And one question that keeps coming up is, will Ethiopia be willing to release enough water downstream to mitigate droughts and long-term? But on the other side of it, it's going to be when they're recovering after a multi-year drought, and they've got to get their water levels back up in the dams to produce electricity and things. You know, who's going to have priority and how is that process going to go? But they've got to coordinate this and now is the time to get the agreement before it's too late because it's going to cause friction. 
the future and regional strategic implications here. Is there anything else significant that we need to address about that? There are probably three key areas that can be instrumental for the next century. The first is effective use of dams to control waters during floods, provide electricity, but more importantly, serve as an insurance policy against drought in times of climatic stress. The second is better agricultural practices. And the last is improved stewardship policies, infrastructure to manage water as a resource. Along with these changes, the U.S. can encourage, you know, the riparian states to sign the Nile Basin initiative to work on better use of and management of the water in the future. This can provide a springboard of trust between Egypt and Ethiopia that can help get an agreement between the GERD and, you know, establish a a framework that can be used in the future. Dams can provide water and security for people in the Nile River Basin. It's green, right? We don't have to worry about contributing to the environmental impact. There are 257 million people in 2016 didn't have access to electricity, you know, and it's going to grow to 650 million by 2030. 90% of these are going to be in sub-Saharan Africa. So we've got opportunities for green solutions. And and I do think dams can be one way that they do that, but it's just got to be part of a comprehensive system coordinated among everyone impacted, which uh, in the Nile River Basin, there are a number of countries. Do you have any final thoughts to wrap this up? Africa has got so much land that's not being utilized. They require rain to sustain so many of their crops. If we just flip that, I don't remember off the top of my head, but I think probably 80 to 90% of their agriculture is all rain fed. And if we can switch that and get some irrigation systems, I think we can get their yields up. If you get the yields up, you can produce more, but they have more land, agriculture that's untapped and it could provide a number of countries with food sources. And you do know that uh, there are different regions that, and countries, you know, you've got uh, UAE and Saudi Arabia that are getting crops imported from there. But we've just got to look at the overall practice and make sure that we don't use water intensive crops in regions that can't, that's not sustainable long-term. So when we look at whatever we're introducing, we got to look at the next 10 to 20 years down the road as we introduce different agricultural products. We really just scratched the surface of such a broad and important topic. Thank you again for your time. Thanks for your contribution to Parameters. Listeners, if this topic interests you at all, I encourage you to check out the article. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. If you enjoyed this episode of Decisive Point and would like to hear more, look for us on Amazon Music, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and any other major podcast platform.